0: Future of Finance
1: podcast, where finance finds its future.
2: Hello, everybody. I'm Dominic Cobson co-founder of Future of Finance. Welcome to our webinar: Are Central Banks Thinking Radically Enough About CBDCs? Now, when we last visited the question of CBDCs back at the end of November, a clear picture seemed to be emerging. CBDCs would be retail, not wholesale. Central banks would provide the infrastructure. Commercial banks would face off to the retail customers, uh, including during the customer due diligence and indeed being responsible for protecting personal privacy. Competition to service those retail customers was at least as important to the central banks as control of monetary conditions. So CBDC infrastructures would probably be open to non-banks as well as banks. Stable coins we thought would survive, but CBDCs uh, would like CBDCs be regulated. CBDC has also had a major role to play in meeting the G20 goal of cutting the costs of cross-border payments. So it all felt at the time as if a CBDC in a major market was imminent. The webinar was actually entitled, The Waiting is Over. Now is that consensus disintegrating, or is it so solid that the debate can move on to new issues? Is the waiting over, or has it just begun? To help us decide, I'm joined by five people who've been thinking about whether CBDCs should happen, and if they do happen, how they should happen. Ricardo Correa is the head of digital currencies at R3, where his team develop and offer products and services to central banks and financial institutions exploring CBDCs and, importantly, fiat-backed stablecoins. R3 is working with a number of central banks on CBDC projects, including on Project Dunbar and eCrona. Gilbert Verdian is CEO and founder at Quant Network, creators of the overlay blockchain operating system Overledger that makes blockchain protocols and traditional systems interoperable. Vadim Sobolevsky is head of strategy and development at FutureFlow, builders of a CBDC that makes the CBDC programmable, potentially transforming the conduct of monetary and fiscal policy. Jake Hartley is business development director and CBDC, uh, subject matter expert at Finality International, which has devised an ingenious solution for central bank money settlements without CBDCs. John Whittaker is an economist at Lancaster University who specializes in monetary policy and financial markets and contributed to the recent House of Lords report on a retail CBDC in the UK. In addition to our panelists, we do of course have you, our audience. We want your questions, we want your comments. So send them, keep sending them throughout the webinar via the Q&A functionality at the bottom of your Zoom screens. Uh, And rest assured, I will not be saving those up to the end, but we'll uh, get our panelists to address them as we go along. So you can be, if you choose to be, an integral part of this discussion right from the start. And I think all six of us will be very disappointed if lots of you don't take that opportunity. We've got lots to talk about, so let's get underway. Uh, Ricardo, I'd like to begin with you. Now, when I checked the Atlantic Council CBDC tracker a few days ago, it recorded 84 CBDC projects at various stages of development. Uh, just two of them were launched. I thought perhaps only one of them was actually launched, but uh, it included Nigeria in the pair. Uh, seven of them are pilots, 13 are proofs of concept, but 56 of them uh, were still at the research stage. And we, uh, even, the, even China's CBDC, which we had expected to be fully launched uh, in, in February, uh, didn't seem to happen, so I have a sort of double-headed question for you. One is, are these the sort of lead times which we should expect, or or do we think progress towards the CBDC is uh, is slowing down? And the second half of the question is, it's interesting that none of the uh, none of the G seven countries, um, UK, US, Canada, France, Germany, Italy, and Japan, none of them has either issued a CBDC or even committed to issue one and and should we be surprised by that? So two questions, are we slowing down and why haven't the the major economies committed to a CBDC? Thanks Tom um, and thanks for having me on uh,
0: with my fellow panelists. So I do recall when the e project kicked off maybe three years ago, part of the discussion was how long the pilot would be. And at some point there was was a, uh, a discussion around you know, it potentially taking up to seven years. So we know that these pilots are multi-year, they're long. There's many different phases. We started off with technical evaluation. Um, and then, of course, we moved our focus from wholesale to retail. And now, of course, we're seeing a little bit of a rebalance um, of retail back to wholesale, certainly in a security settlement, which I'm sure we'll talk about in a little bit as well. But listen, getting to production is always really difficult. The case of CBDCs is, of course, many extra challenges. There's, uh, there's a network and an ecosystem play, so many different participants, many different moving parts. Um, and uh, as I've said, you know, the eCrona project um, is now into its third year. And of course, part of that project and others as well uh, need to consider perhaps legislation and central bank that changes in order for them to be able to issue a digital form of their uh, fiat currency. Um, so we're, we're seeing, you know, the creation of task forces and working groups that engage the ecosystem more generally. So this isn't something that can be done, you know, uh, unilaterally. It's a, it's a multilateral kind of uh, pro, uh, uh, initiative. Many different players are required for this to be successful. You, you can launch quickly, um, but without engaging the ecosystem and without making sure that you've got kind of the right place in the right, in the right place in the right model, um, it will be challenging. And we've seen some of that uh, already. So in the early days, uh, there was a lot of FUDs, so to speak, with respect to central banks, potentially disintermediating the commercial banks by issuing directly. We're now past that, of course, and we're seeing more uh, kind of uh, reasonable models kind of uh, becoming commonplace, hybrid or intermediated models. Are emerging as the models uh, that central banks will be kind of more willing to, to issue with their central banks. And also we're seeing, whilst, we, whilst you're not seeing necessarily an acceleration towards production, certainly what we're seeing is an acceleration towards um, pilots that are more mature. So whereas perhaps even 18 to 24 months ago, there was still projects that were in research and very slow to kind of get to pilot we are seeing lots more projects coming into the pilot phases and more advanced pilots as I mentioned and I suspect that you know we'll see extra velocity as more central banks break the four minute mile, so to speak. Um, In terms of uh, G7s not launching yet I mean we did hear Jerome Powell not too long ago suggest that we're gonna do it right versus doing it quickly. Um, And I think that's absolutely the right approach to take. We have seen some projects that have launched early um, that have run into some issues, the ECCB being the most recent one. Um, It's now back up and running, which is great, but there were some some issues that were unforeseen. And certainly the technology becomes, still is an issue of course, but governance um, operational concern is a really big deal. So operating these networks is not trivial um and jake is in the room jake will know how difficult it is to get these things up and running with legislation changes etc so i'll stop there and pass
2: on to the others thanks don okay but i'd love to hear from you in a minute jake but before we do perhaps i could ask gilbert who has i know experience of, of working with government um am i right to be concerned there's been some sort of loss of momentum or is it as ricardo says that they're actually moving into the serious phase
3: now yeah thank you dominic um yeah, completely echo what, what Ricardo said. Um, you know, payment systems are complex. Uh, they, they are national critical infrastructure and non-CBDC payment asset or a system still takes a long time to, to, to get online um, and then connect all the uh, members, member banks, um, you know, issue, issue the scheme rules. So they all operate at the same level and then push it out to the wider, wider consumer base these things take years. Uh, It's not that easy to to upgrade or install a a new payment system. Um, CBDCs are are quite new, but um, I I think what we're seeing as well is the the serious approach to CBDCs. It it was a a lot of theoretical experimentation, but now that people are actually um, seeing it deployed in in smaller jurisdictions, for example, um, people are learning what, what the possibilities are and what it means to complement their existing payment infrastructure with with central bank digital currencies, and what does that mean for the end business and the end consumer and and the scheme itself? Um, so I, I think it's actually accelerated, and the BIS had a, a paper on this uh, last week. I think it was it was an update to their CBDC survey, and, and now there's over ninety percent of central banks around the world who are actively engaged in you know some sort of research or pilot um, to go to production. Uh,
2: Jake, I, um. You have obviously been working closely with the with the Bank of England on on the, the omnicus the customer on bus account model, which you've been developing at finality. I don't know whether now is the time to, to share with the audience um, what, what that actually is or whether you want to talk about that a bit later when we come to to cross border payments where CBDCs have a, have a big role to play. But has it been a has this I don't know last six to 12 months been a, a sort of growing up period for I'm sure it has been for you, but has it been a growing up period for the central banks as well?
1: Yeah, likewise, thank you for for having me on and pleasure to be here. I think that um, as regards the regulatory landscape more broadly in, you know, major jurisdictions like uh, the Bank of England with the European Central Bank and with the uh, Fed, I think there's been significant progress on, you know, the policy landscape, which is actually gonna enable uh, the the progress of central bank digital currencies and also, uh, you know, initiatives that seek to provide the, uh, the benefits of a wholesale CBDC arrangement, uh, you know, perhaps through uh, different means too. So in uh, April of 2021, the Bank of England published their omnibus accounts policy, uh, which was devised uh, to, to allow innovative financial market infrastructures access to central bank money. Um, Finality was the first organisation to apply uh, for that new account. Uh, and we're working closely with the bank as well to, you know, complete all of the requirements to get our account and, and the US, uh, the UK FMPS live and operational by October this year. Uh, as regards the uh, ECB, they uh, also announced their plans for pre-funded settlement in Target Two, uh, which you know formalises the route to account opening for, uh, you know, for a finality payment system in in Europe too. Um, And in the US, the November 2021 publication uh, of a report on stable coins by the president's working group on financial markets uh, offered further confidence as well in that area. I think as regards CBDC and on the topic of why a G7 country hasn't issued a CBDC or even committed to one, I think to bifurcate that along the retail and wholesale lines. um, In retail, it's very much still a wait-and-see approach, I think, you know, both around how other pilots in smaller nations play out and if they can be instructive uh, and to consult more widely on valid concerns like privacy, financial inclusion or the democratic issues too. Uh, Whereas on the wholesale side, I think, you know, while CBDCs have experienced a surge of interest from central banks and observers alike, the majority of that interest is centered around retail CBDCs still, as as, as you mentioned at the start, uh, rather than for wholesale CBDC is designed specifically for payments and settlements in the in the wholesale sector. So obviously, despite several high-profile projects, which you know people on this call have been involved in, as I know. Um, so I think you know, the, the focus of several major central banks and what the regulatory developments recently that I mentioned at the start there are indicating is that the focus is shifting, I think, fairly significantly from the pursuit of wholesale CBDC to the incorporation of features of the underlying technology you know, in, into RTGS TGS renewal programs, into engagement with the market and the like. And I think the rationale for that overall was put quite well by the CPMI, where they said that currently proposed implementations of wholesale CBDCs look broadly similar to and not clearly superior to uh, existing infrastructures. So I think you know, overall, the absence of any wholesale CBDC solution yet alive indicates that uh, and this is being borne out in regulation in those three major economies that I that I mentioned. There, uh, public sector institutions may instead kind of wish to avail themselves of certain features of private sector innovations uh, that such solutions wouldn't actually possess if they were based on traditional design choices. I think there's, uh, as Ricardo mentioned at the start, there's a significant element of pragmatism which has entered their entered their uh, thinking and decision making process, and I think that there's. Broad acceptance from everyone in the CBDC community that there are certain things that uh, si- both sides, you know, public and private, have a natural advantage for, and it doesn't have to be uh, driven solely by uh, central banks anymore. I think, you know, an example of some of those things, and we may touch on this later, that uh, would benefit from that kind of collaboration are things like cross border coordination, technological expertise, facilitating interoperability, which is obviously vital. Uh, and you know maintaining the integrity of an, any underlying technical protocol too. So, I think that's you know from from where we're sitting, uh, where the where the direction of travel is heading.
2: Thanks, Jake. Um, we're starting to get questions come in now, and and, and we'll come back to that that points you've just raised about the retail versus wholesale being a bit of a and ricardo said the same thing a bit of a crude divide you'd think slightly more um flexibly about that but uh, john perhaps i can just put a, a specific question to you now which which occurs which is that we are what has changed since november last year um is that we've entered the up, upswing of the interest rate cycle now and i wondered if that has changed central bank perceptions about um introducing a, a CBDC. I mean, back in November, we you know we talked about whether a CBDC might be a flop, and one of the tools that a central bank could deploy in that case would be uh, to raise interest rates to attract more people to use it. For example, now of course we're looking at inflation and, and rising interest rates. Uh, maybe the CBDC is attractive for different reasons; it becomes a sort of solid safe haven, or not, as the case may be. Do you think, just plainly putting it plainly, do you think the upswing in interest rates has changed central bank perceptions?
4: I don't think it should do because the uh apparent advantages of the CBDC have not changed in the upswing in the interest rate cycle. But uh, I think uh, what we need to look at, though, is uh, how we determine the interest rate, or rather the reward for people placing their deposits as a CBDC. Um, If you just leave it at zero, then as interest rates rise, then the CBDC becomes a less attractive proposition and uh, you can see people moving away from it. So it seems to me silly to have the idea that um, the uptake of CBDC should be dependent upon market interest rates. There's got to be some mechanism for adjusting the reward to CBDC holders according to the markets. Right. Well, once you start looking into that, uh, it raises the question as to, well, how much interest should the uh, or rather what's the relationship between the interest rate paid on CBDC and bank rates in this country, which, of course, is the interest paid to uh, central banks, sorry, banks reserves at the central bank. Clearly, if the interest rate on CBDC were higher than bank rate, then you get a load of interest. If it's less, then that may be less so. But that's a crucial determinant, I think, of the uptake of CBDC. Its advantages, as as others have just said, probably lie in ease of payment system, perhaps domestically, but certainly internationally. And uh, to make full use of that, you've got to have a, a considerable number of actors involved It would be no no use having a central bank digital currency where there's only a few people involved because you wouldn't get the network advantages then. You've got to have a substantial number of players, whether it be a wholesale or a retail CBDC, for for any advantages to be there. Now, I've got more to say on the effect of that on the balance sheet of the central bank, but so so I hope I've convinced you that interest rate is indeed a rather important consideration here. Mm
2: -hmm. Um, We'll we'll stay with that the difference between what you've just described and the and the long-standing sort of term structure of interest rates i suppose the relationship between what the bank of england's rate is and interest rates throughout the economy it's clearly an important relationship you're absolutely right and not something we've talked about that often in these in these debates but i'd just like to bring um vadim in at this point uh and uh, vadim, perhaps we could go back to to where the interest rate component in cbdc discussions began which was the concern that uh uh, a CBDC would start to attract deposits from the commercial banks that would undermine their funding and therefore undermine their um, ability to, to lend and maybe even start to exacerbate uh, bank runs in a in a crisis. Um, do you think that consideration has, has gone away or is it becoming more important now than it was six, mm-hmm. 12 months ago?
5: What is becoming more clear now that you've started talking about the upswing in interest rates is that uh, central banks, at least throughout the developed world, have um, not used properly the long period of low interest rates in order to stimulate economic activity. And now that that long 10 year period, 10 year plus period has come to an end, we realize that central banks are being forced to raise interest rates and that period where they could have been doing something to influence economic activity positively at the time of low interest rates have essentially not been um, used properly and that really raises the point that to be fair to central banks um with the interest rate being really the only tool at their disposal for managing economic activity despite qe of course which um, doesn't really work very well as we have seen um, central banks don't really have uh much of a of a way of influencing economic activity as much as they perhaps would like. And from my perspective, what this really makes evident now is that CBDC could be thought of as an additional tool that central banks could be using to reach economic activity a little closer than they can, or they could up to now and um, enhance their ability to uh, both uh, supervise and influence economic activity. So to go back to your point, I don't think there's much over. Um, much of a significant effect of rising interest rates on either improved take up or um, reduced take up of CBDC, because I think, in my mind, if CBDC were to be introduced, um, it should only be introduced in the context where um, the interest rate on CBDC and on commercial bank deposits is roughly equivalent, or at least at least governed by by similar forces. But from my perspective, the determination of what sort of uptick. Um, or uptake, excuse me, of CBDC uh, we may see should be decided by the factors of what exactly economic agents will be doing with CBDC. Um, I think the the difficulty that we have at the moment while envisioning CBDC is that central banks or just um, any debating uh, entity in this space, if you will, uh, think about CBDC as a perfect substitute to other forms of retail money that is available today, whether it's cash or Commercial bank deposits. And for that reason, inevitably, we think about the potential demand for CBDC as simply a function of its attractiveness, as in the, re- the rate of remuner- uh, remuneration. Whereas in our mind, uh, CBDC should only retail CBDC here, I need to make, um, uh, make it clear that I'm speaking specifically about retail CBDC. In our uh, envisioning, retail CBDC should only be introduced um, with features that make it not necessarily perfect substitute to other forms of uh, money available to, ge- to the general public today, whether it's cash or commercial bank deposits. And it's really the question of whether those new features, and we can talk later about what they may be, whether those new features will be sufficient uh, enough to attract the attention of the general public, whether it's enterprises or private um, entities, towards actually using CVDC. Uh-
2: thanks for that uh, uh, vadim ricardo just to close off and give everyone listening a very clear idea of of where things stand on on retail versus wholesale which is a sort of binary way we used to look at this which is now increasingly clear that that's um not a very intelligent way to look at it um vadim mentioned um a retail um john contributed to this house of lords report uh, published in january this year saying that uh, uh, that um, they'd yet to hear a convincing case for a for a retail um, CBDC. Now, somebody still trapped in a binary mindset might think, oh, well, that means we're going to get a, a wholesale one. Just give us a, a quick summary of where we where we really are on that spectrum between a simple retail and a simple wholesale before we move on to talk about some of the, the use cases for CBDCs and stable coins. Sure. So
0: back in... 2016, um, the Bank of Canada kicked off Project Jasper, and that was on wholesale, and that kind of kicked off a wave of wholesale CBDC projects um, across Project Ubin and Thanon, Lion Rock, and others, um, looking at you know PVP, DVP or the wholesale end. In 2019, as we saw, kind of the announcement of Libra in July, you know, we saw a massive shift towards retail CBDC for obvious reasons. So you know, uh, you know, massive risk of big tech getting into kind of the payment space. And that's been the trend I'd suggest up until maybe six months ago, until the end of last year, where we saw the demise of DM. And and it's, you know, certainly from my perspective, again, a market shift towards a rebalancing of, you know, retail and wholesale um, projects and wholesale projects now being focused more on, you know, cross border and um, security settlement, as we've seen with, uh, Helvetia and Jura and a few others as well I think the other key thing to mention here is um, and you did say it's uh, you know uh, this this somewhat immature way of looking at retail and wholesale and what we are seeing is a slight convergence of wholesale and retail and by that I mean you know the 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 this bifurcation of what the central bank is um, is uh, focused on which is the issuance of uh, central bank uh, digital currency and then the distribution of that issuance being the responsibility of the private sector regardless of where that distribution will be whether it's you know multilateral bilateral domestic cross-border it doesn't really matter and so the narrative that we'll probably expect to see going forward is one which is less about retail and wholesale but one that's more about issuance and distribution and distribution in that bucket, if you double click that, that's where then you'd see the various forms of distribution models that you might expect. And so certainly that's what we're seeing kind of in the work that we're doing with the central banks.
2: We've had a question from a member of the audience, Dan Feeney here, who says, how will credit reference agencies interact with CBDCs in terms of risk and scoring of loans to individuals and businesses? Um, I'm not sure quite what he's driving at, but um, John, do you have a, does that question raise a thought in your mind or not?
4: Well, yes, it rather does because uh, I don't. I know very little about the technologies that most the other panel members seem to be uh, thoroughly involved in. But uh, if you've got uh, any sort of transactions taking place, sort of in the dark, as of the uh, sorry, that's the wrong terminology, away from the standard commercial banking activity, then clearly there's got to be some kind of um, uh, vetting of creditworthiness. And so I, I could sort of see the points in that gentleman's uh, question. Uh, I don't know anything, I can say anything further about it. Mm
5: -hmm. Dominic, let me take a quick stab at this um, question, if I may. And of course, that would perhaps only refer to uh, potential environments that envision certain types of CBDC architecture. So if you envision a typical CBDC architecture, which I suppose is becoming kind of a consensus model, a two-tier architecture where the central bank is responsible for Um, The general ledger, so to speak, which is the record of all, you know, CBDC issuance mass out there with record of all transactions, perhaps, and the second tier of private institutions, which are facilitating the transactions um, across various individuals and entities, Uh, regardless of the technology that is implemented to actually maintain this two tier system, uh, conceptually, you have the architecture where uh, one institution is um, in possession of quite a bit of data. And that data can very easily uh, be depersonalized, both um, uh, conceptually and technologically, which means that that data can be quite useful for various uh, use cases, credit scoring being one of them, which can be done by analyzing the pure flow of funds as opposed to analyzing the entity itself. So in in other words, when you envision um, a credit scoring request what, what we normally think about this is understanding something about the given entity, right? How long has it been in business? What is its revenue? You know, What is its debt outstanding, et cetera, et cetera. Right? We just try to understand the business or an individual for that matter. Do they have a mortgage? You know, where do they work? What's their salary, et cetera. We really focus attention on the entity. Uh, what we really have the prospect for in this two-tier, two-tier CBDC architecture is the possibility of using the central bank's understanding of the broad flow of funds in the economy in order to help all economic may- agents to make um, decisions or analysis about each other or about themselves without touching any of that personal information at all. Right? Because if you think about an entity, whether it's a person or business, it's essentially um, a point through which a lot of funds pass. Right? And where those funds go and where they come from Uh, is largely orthogonal to the individual or the entity itself. And that information is very valuable. It can be analyzed in privacy-respecting way, and it can be very useful both to the analyzing entity itself for the purposes of running the entire economy and for each individual uh, entity or, um, or person who may be trying to understand something about their economic activity or somebody else's economic activity.
3: So that-
2: okay, thanks, Vadim. It's very helpful. And thank you, Dan, for that question. It's actually proved a rather seminal one. Uh, John has explained that actually if, if transactions are taking place outside the banking system, credit assessments are even more important. And Vadim has explained to us that actually the CBDC is going to create these data sets, if you like, which can be used anonymously without compromising people's privacy to understand uh, credit assessments. So it's certainly going to change the, the way in which credit reference agencies um, work now could we quickly just touch on on the question of um of of stable coins uh in the last week or two we've seen a stable coin um disappear uh before that we've seen the world's biggest stable coin be fined uh, at least two occasions by by regulators these these instruments have until last week proved amazingly resilient to um to uh, um so we say regulatory um, difficulties. We now have both the United States government and the UK government, as Jake mentioned, looking to bring uh, stablecoins within the regulatory um, perimeter. And um, what, what, what do you think the relationship between CBDCs and stablecoins is going to be going forward? We kind of used to think CBDCs would knock stablecoins out, but I think we're probably now arriving at a more nuanced view in which stablecoins survive for certain purposes but will be regulated. Now, Jake, you're nodding, so give us
1: a view. Yeah, for sure. I think that, look, you know, obviously making reference to uh, Terra there and also Tether, I think that using those as an example, stablecoins at the moment are either in a rather Dodgy domicile, whether it be the British Virgin Islands or wherever it may be, or you know, uh, uh, supported by a vulnerable uh, a- algorithmic, uh, you know, technology, mm-hmm. or in the best case, currently commercial bank risk in the case of like a circle or something like that. So this this may be okay uh, for retail markets, but I think quite significant difficulties in large value wholesale markets where a cash asset with the credit risk characteristics of central bank money is highly desirable, if not essential. Um, I think, you know, in parallel to this, I can answer a question which has come up in the Q&A there, you know, a CBDC is a threat to crypto. I think on the topic of crypto and on the topic of stable coins, the uh, logical endpoint for this is regulation. I think a regulatory framework is inevitable, both due to consumer protection concerns, but also to enable adoption of the broader tokenized asset market uh, and integration into mainstream finance. I think, you, you know, you may have seen El Salvador, for example, has made Bitcoin legal tender, but they found themselves all of a sudden rather cut off from the global financial system because major financial institutions all of a sudden can't help them manage their balance sheet anymore because they, you know, with those assets on the balance sheet, they, they they find it very difficult to interact with the the global financial system in the same way that they used to before. I think where, where we end up depends on what riders are attached to this inevitable regulatory framework, uh, you know, to determine what the boundaries are. Um, Cynics might say that regulation of stable coins might belie an underlying desire to restrict asset, to, uh, you know, access to crypto asset markets, uh, maybe even for reasons that central banks assume to be benevolent, like consumer protection. Um, it's difficult to know until it happens, but in the retail space, things like Terra and Tether are massively unwelcome from the point of view of anyone who's seeking uh, uh, crypto asset legitimacy. I think in the wholesale space, it goes back to the point that no public stable coin has sought to become that cash asset that's used for payments in this space, um, at least not in uh, a serious way. By that I mean with, with a cash asset with the credit characteristics of central bank money rather than commercial bank money in the best case.
4: Can I just add something. Then? Yes. Sure. Uh, if you regulate stable coins, the implication is that you are concerned that a failure of a large number of stable coins, presumably Uh, in the future when the things grown a lot bigger we cause uh, contagion effects on the uh, established banking system in which case then you regulate them to try and make them behave they're beginning to look a bit like banks themselves if you do that in which case that raises for me the question well if you're concerned about the collapse of stable coins uh, uh, and the contagion effects surely you ought to consider also lender of last resort facilities from the central bank which is the protection that the standard commercial banks enjoy at the moment? Uh, Jake, your question for you really. Uh, do you think that uh, we could expect that kind of recognition by the central banks, including this kind of safety net provided in case of trouble?
1: I think that it's going to be inherently included. It has, it has to be included in uh, the overarching, uh, what, the reason why I said at the start, you know, that there's a wait and see approach, I think, at the moment. In the retail space, is almost entirely driven by desire for consumer protection. So, I think that these things are necessarily going to be front of mind.
2: Mm-hmm. Now, Gilbert, um, irrespective of what we think of, of stablecoins as, as deposit attractors, if you like, they are doing a job of work in cryptocurrency trading and the decentralized finance markets. They are the base currency for a lot of the trading activities going on in there. So, they're not unimportant in those, in, in those activities, at least. What is your view about the survivability of? stablecoins as we look forward to a world in which cbdc's are issued in major economies
3: yeah i think the um the events in the last week have, have really proven the point um that the whole financial system is is foundationally built on upon trust and and if something goes wrong you have some protection mechanisms with with your commercial banks and ultimately with the central bank uh to consumers and, and to businesses um we we really don't see um survivability of algorithmic or crypto stablecoins, what we, what we actually see is a world of regulated and issued um, commercial stablecoins that are done by institutions, um, done by e-money license holders and, and commercial banks. So at the same time, we're going to have a uh, you know, network of networks of commercially issued stablecoins that are actually interdependent and interlinked to wholesale CBDCs. And these are all um, redeemed, accepted, and settled across networks in a, in a true cross-border fashion. Um, and these are, are all tr- all trusted and, and backed by real money. Um, it, it's an evolution of money, and 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 the, the so what of you know why would someone use that instead of um, a, a wire transfer or a faster payments transaction or something along those lines? Is you've got programmability. It's it's an evolution of money. It's 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 smart money that you can actually use to automate a whole bunch of complex business processes. And that allows you to use money and um, your backend treasury reconciliation and, and other things in, in a better and more efficient way. So, so this is where we're heading and, and we're already seeing consortiums of banks and corporates get together. Uh, you know, there's a few examples, the, the USDF, which is a whole bunch of uh, smaller commercial banks in the US coming together to issue their own. Uh, commercial stable coin. We're, we're seeing that in Japan with, with multinational conglomerates coming together with banks and issuing their own. Uh, and also corporates like Volvo. I mean, they've done it. They've, they've issued their own um, Volvo uh, Euro, for example, and that's used within the group and, and across uh, for, for redemption. Um, and, and uh, you know, we're going to see more of that.
2: Um, we've had a question on this from Sven Jorgensen, who says, can a privately issued collateralized stable coins such as USDC negate the need for a CBDC? What do you think, Gilbert? Is it a coexistence or? or
3: yeah, I, I think it comes back to, to the question and, and and Jake also answered it and Ricardo did. It, it's not a wholesale retail uh, binary debate. It's, it's how does it fit within the financial system? So, you know, there, there could be jurisdictions where they only issue a wholesale CBDC, and the retail aspect is a commercial stablecoin issued by a, a regulated entity, and the, so there's, there may not be a need for a retail stable, uh, retail CBDC. In smaller jurisdictions, uh, you know the central bank wants to issue the retail CBDC because they only have a, a small population, and and they want to be able to, you know have the end-to-end flow direct to the consumer wallet or, or to the business it really depends on on the use case but I, I think it really comes down to um, the trusting and, and uh, you know having regulated entities um, being able to to um, have a new form of money that, that gives people and, and businesses uh, better benefits than what they have got today.
1: Mm-hmm. yeah I, I would agree with that I think that you know I'm definitely an, an admirer of what circle are doing I think it, I think it's great um, but I think it's it's all about the use case. As Gilbert said, I think that uh, ultimately the uh, collateralization of uh, uh, circles asset is commercial bank money risk. I think it's held with signature bank. If I'm if I'm correct in the, in the US, uh, There are uh, several elements of the wholesale market, particularly you know for really really high value transactions, where a, uh, a an asset with the credit risk characteristics of central bank money is really all that all that will do for the user, rather than Uh, you know, a commercial bank money-backed solution like USDC, but that's not to say that it doesn't have extensive utility in many other spaces. Mm
0: -hmm. One thing I'll add there is um, we know that not all CBDCs or stablecoins are created equal. Of course, we've talked about Algo-backed, Fiat-backed. CBDCs as well are are all uh, kind of emerging with different models and different characteristics. Um, Jake, you mentioned perhaps there's an opportunity to issue kind of retail or rather wholesale and have, uh, kind of a domestic stablecoin kind of issuance uh, regulated, and so there's no one way. I think there's a raging debate right now. You know, initially there was like, yes, yeah, so great, these things will coexist, and then for a while there was the, the the narrative was, no, actually, CBDCs will play out because it's a stronger form of money. Um, the characteristics of a CBDC would would surpass kind of the characteristics of a stablecoin, um, and there's no there's no conclusion to that debate just yet. I think, you know, certainly as we look at this, CBDCs are intended to be general purpose issuance of money to be used by the population for goods and services, where we are seeing some stable coins being kind of issued for specific reasons and settlement within certain groups, like Volvo, for example, as Gilbert mentioned. Um, so, so, yes, I think that, that there is no conclusion. Will one surpass the other? We don't know. I think CBDCs and stable coins into things like DeFi, um, networks and, uh, and, you know, this notion of web three, etc is really interesting. Um, so I suspect that over the next, you know, 12 to 24 months, we'd have a better picture of you know, what the best models will be. But I suspect that there's not going to be one broad brush for everybody. I think it's going to be domestic by domestic,
2: kind of country by country. Now, here's a question for you, uh, Vadim, from Ariel Fishman. What is quant's role in relation to CBDCs, either wholesale or retail?
3: suppose you meant Gilbert. Thanks to me, yeah. Um, we're, we're an infrastructure provider that, that creates interoperable digital assets and it just depends on the different types of customers on, on what they need. Um, one of the technologies we've got is actually uh, being able to create an asset that is at its, infant, at its birth, uh, interoperable, so you don't need to have um, you know, we call them hacks uh, to, to mint and burn and all these sort of things that the asset can run <clears throat> on, on multiple blockchains at the same time. Um, our, our You know, we're an innovation company, our our, uh, our technology is, is there for customers to, to use for their particular use case. Mm-hmm.
2: It's very good. But are you answering Omar Bedoun's question there about how Overledger will work with other blockchain network providers like R3 and and Finality? Not sure i am right to describe them as network providers, but you get the point.
3: Yeah, um, I, I think, you know, as, as an interoperability platform, you know, we, we do have the ability to interconnect various different types of uh, DLTs and public blockchains, uh, depending on the use case. We, we've done quite a bit of work in, in Europe with SIA, with, with Corda, and, and we've interconnected Corda with, with other DLTs. And, and we're doing that with partners of ours that have um, closed loop private digital assets running on... Fabric, for example, that need to be unlocked and, and operated on other networks, external networks, for example. Um, our technology is the bridge to, to be able to uh, securely interconnect and interoperate between different networks.
2: Um, we'll, we'll come back to that quest that quant question in a minute. Um, time is marching on, so I'd like to talk a little bit about, about cross-border payments, where CBD emerges as a major use case for, for right. CBDCs. And, um, uh, Ricardo, you, you brought up a number of these, these projects which central banks have been running. In fact, I'm going to have a look at a, a bunch of them um, before, before we, as part of my research for today. And for example, Project Jura, and I'm going to kind of roll securities, cross-border security settlement into this, because that's the second major use case for cross-border uh, use of CBDCs. So Jura tells us you can settle securities uh, transactions atomically across borders, across currencies, without disturbing the regulatory frameworks in either of the the countries at either end of this um, and without necessarily using, or you can use intermediaries if you want to. Um, And it doesn't mean central banks lose control of their own currency either, which is one of the the concerns people had. Project Ubin, you also brought up that proved that uh, tokenized assets could be settled between these interoperating blockchain platforms. Um, You could do cross border, cross currency payments Um, with that you could use in fact use smart contracts uh, to automate um, certain aspects of multi-currency transactions project Jasper which I think you also mentioned um, uh, Ricardo showed that you know you could settle uh, again cross-border cross-currency. so so the case has been proven this actually works at least bilaterally if not necessarily multilaterally um, yet Uh, what does that mean for Um, I I don't know how easy this is to summarize. What does it mean for correspondent banks? What does it mean for CLS? What does it mean for SWIFT? Um, Are we going to see CBDC platforms, if you like, hooking up with each other?
0: Yeah, the elephant in the room, or the multiple elephants in the room, I suppose. Mm -hmm. Um, So there's two big projects in the multi CBDC space, MCBDC and Dunbar, Uh, looking at that uh, kind of cross-border payments, not necessarily for security settlement in the case of Dunbar and MCBDC, but Project Jura did demonstrate that that's possible. And listen, it was an 18-month project to do something that was, um, you know, uh, pretty complex, but at the surface, kind of at a high level, you're moving money, you know, across border and you're using that money to settle uh, kind of uh, securities obligations in the SDX network. Over the 18 month period, I'd suggest to you that, you know, interoperability is complex, but it was less about the interoperability of the technology. We've been doing a lot of that for many years, but the interoperability of the legal frameworks was really difficult and the policy frameworks, but we managed to get there. We had to hire, you know, we had two very uh, experienced legal firms on both sides of, the, of that uh, project, um, and we spent many months working through a playbook. Working through the regulatory kind of uh, kind of alignment, etc. So on a on a bilateral, it works well. I'd suggest on a multilateral, we would need to reach some kind of international coordination around how policy and the legal frameworks might come together to enable this. So, you know, lots more wood to chop, so they say here in the US. Um, but yeah, I, th- I we we hear it also from a bunch of um, a bunch of public sector folks. You know, Andrew Bailey, John Cunliffe, and the Bank of England certainly suggesting kind of global coordination for these projects to become real uh, around those things. So, you know, the threat to SWIFT, CLS, and others are suggested as real. We do see SWIFT making moves towards, you know, becoming a value exchange network versus a, just a messaging network, whatever that means. I mean, you'd have to, you'd have to completely re- rewire that entire plumbing for that to be so, but it's not necessarily altogether. Um, impossible, I'd suggest, but listen, the thread is there. We work Swift is involved in a lot of these projects as well, guys. So they're in the working groups, they're working on initiatives. They are trying to understand kind of what the opportunity is around this value exchange versus message message exchange. Um, but you will see project Dunbar and MCBDC move into their next phases in the next few months. So you'll see more central banks getting involved more observer banks getting involved. So this stuff is real. And I think, you know, the appetite from the public sector to come together is, in fact, the big threat because that's what
2: we're seeing kind of more broadly. Very quickly, to be clear on two points, what is impossible is for central banks to get into the FX business, one, and point to what is also impossible is for banks in one country to be supervised by the central bank in another to facilitate these payments. So those two things are impossible, deemed to be impossible, are they? Yes.
0: Uh, and, you know, to that point, I think... There are, there are different ways to configure these networks such that you don't necessarily have to have banks deployed onto um, a central bank network where there'd, there'd be oversight required. So for Project Jura, um, maybe there's a misconception that money actually moves across networks. Actually, the money doesn't move across networks so What you have is money issued into a subnetwork that then allows a cross atomic swap against an asset on another network. So there's some really clever tech that is facilitating that. But money isn't necessarily moving across networks. In the case of a mint and burn, yes, that is the case. Uh, Gilbert mentioned that. But in the case of a cross atomic swap, which is what we use for Project Jura, in fact, the assets remain in the networks where they were issued. And so still under the governance and the control of the
2: issuer itself. So Jake, money doesn't move. Sounds suspiciously like correspondent
1: banking. I think that you know all, all of these projects are have really been so interesting, and you know kudos to everyone who's been involved in them. I think that the proposals that have made the, the biggest splash are probably what the BIS term those integrated MCBDC arrangements, which obviously comprises the single multi currency system with several CBDCs onboarded onto it. I think that for, from where I'm sitting, you know, the, 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 one of the challenges that can be found there is, you know, in the legal and governance issues that are a primary and jurisdiction-specific concern of central banks and regulators. Um, I think that if, it, well, to go back to what what these MCBDC arrangements envisage, they're envisaging that participating central banks would agree on a single rule book, a single set of participation requirements, a single underlying technical infrastructure, um, obviously with the aim of uh, allowing for greater operational functionality, greater efficiency gains, um, but also, I think increasing the governance and control hurdles inherent in, you know, mitigating the risks of such a system like that. Um, I think it's unlikely, though, that the world will land on a single common settlement platform. And I think that Maz, obviously, who were instrumental in driving this, have said that themselves. the The difficulties that are, you know, inherent in inter-central bank coordination, particularly obviously in the novel area of DLT-based payment systems are substantial, to say the least, Uh, from a technical perspective, where those concerns around single points of failure and resilience are are, are high, getting central banks and regulators in multiple jurisdictions comfortable with the use of a single common platform would be a very large undertaking. Not to say it's impossible, but a very very large undertaking. Um, An additional challenge can be found in the sprawling specificities that are inherent in central banks' desire for control. An oversight over the currency, their currencies and how, how they're used. So I don't think that's going to change anytime soon. And really from finality's point of view, we believe that our series of local finality payment systems uh, are best place to address these legal and governance uh, issues uh, while achieving a secure and resilient uh, solution. You know, we, we've studied... And understood these jurisdictional specificities in collaboration with central banks and regulators. And really what we've done is architected our series of uh, local payment systems to achieve both local oversight and international harmonization from the start. And the, the issue of cross-border, cross-currency interoperability is instead solved without the need for that cooperative management of the payment system across borders with all the difficulties that that entails. Uh, but I suppose rather by giving each central bank appropriate oversight over their local payment system each of which is part of a broader coordinated interoperable whole. Thanks, Jake. Um, I, I'm, we're into our last 10
2: minutes. And I, uh, maybe we can overrun a little bit if you if you guys have got time. I'm very keen to talk about um, the subject of our entire subject of the debate today, which really in the title, which was our oh, central banks not being radical enough. So but before we do, it'd be good to, to dispose of some of the questions from the audience um, as best we can. Um, I'll leave Stevens, and it was quite a good segue. Stevens, it's quite a good segue into our into that monetary policy question. Um, Sven Jorgensen's question: Can CBDCs function on multiple blockchain systems at the same time? By, for example, using Quants multi ledger token technology. Um, Gilbert, is the answer to that yes?
3: Um, yeah, I, I think it just echoes what Jake was saying. Having domestic uh, payment systems. Um, set up to to be uh, accepted within basically competitors. You've you've got 18 banks and who who compete with each other for for your business, and they need to start playing uh, by the rules and, and, you know, working with each other to to run the payment system. Uh, I I think, you know, doing that is, is very difficult um, at at the beginning uh, on, on any type of payment. It could be, you know, card. it could be faster payments, it could be large value or or whatever it is Um, having the technology being ubiquitous and, and seamless is, is quite key to allow for that. But more importantly, having the scheme rules uh, that, that are harmonized and accepted by all by the participants—that's that, even more important. So, doing that domestically um, is, is one challenge, but then doing that globally, cross-border, cross is, is another. And yes, there's many technical ways to, to be able to do this, but you know, our, our view is, you know, money should roam the way your phone roams with you as, as your bank account, it, it should be global. You know, you can spend and accept, uh, your money should be accepted by anywhere in the world that that has a, a banking connection on a domestic or a cross-border system. So yeah, technology is an enabler of that.
2: Uh, another question from Dan Feeney, how relevant will Visa and MasterCard be in a retail CBDC market? Uh, Ricardo? do you have a view on that?
0: Yeah. Got to be careful here, I suppose. So, you know, I think uh, you do see Visa MasterCard making, you know, strides into crypto. Of course, we see them offering crypto services, the ability to kind of use USDC within kind of the MasterCard network, etc. I think the position that they are vying for is in the distribution. I talked about this notion of issuance. Being the focus of the central bank, making sure that they have full control of the issuance of their asset, and then distribution being the responsibility of the private sector. And certainly, I, I can see um, Visa, Mastercard, and others positioning themselves squarely in that space around the distribution of the assets um, and the ability of those assets then to be used within those ne- within their networks uh, to settle obligations. So, yeah, I think you know uh, not only Visa, Mastercard, or other payment providers that we see. Certainly sitting within that distribution side. Um, Different initiatives from Visa. um, We've seen, uh, you know, uh, is it UFC, the universal UPC maybe payment module? Looks a little bit like uh, kind of a global network to provide interoperability of CBDCs, um, which is interesting. So, you know, slightly different initiatives from, from both of them. I think the question that was asked, you know, can CBDCs be used across networks? I think that's our job. Our job is to make sure that they are. This isn't going to work. So, you know, I think the payment service providers, SWIFT and others, are vying to provide those services as well. Um, I'll stop there, pass on to others.
2: I'm afraid the next one is for you as well, actually. What's your view of the regulated liability network concept? And I think that's this is an R3 idea, is it not?
0: Oh, God, no, it's not. It's actually Tony McLaughlin uh, at Citibank who's been uh, lobbying for the RLN. The RLN is really interesting. It kind of says, hey, we already have liabilities. We already have legislation around that and policy. We don't need to change anything. We don't need to issue CBDCs or stable coins. In fact, we can just uh, securitize our liabilities and issue those into a network and then use those to settle obligations. It's an interesting idea. Um, we are working with Citi and others uh, to put together a POC to demonstrate how that might work. Um, it's not to say that you know this isn't uh, a possibility that would um, surpass the other initiatives around CBDC and stable coins. I think it's an additive, um, but certainly what the promise is is that we don't need to change anything. We don't need new regulation. We don't need any of that. We get the benefits of DLT and programmability and I think um, was it Vadim that mentioned programmability as kind of one of the key net opportunities that we're seeing with CBDC's programmability? So, yeah, it's interesting. Um, I, I, I think there's certainly an opportunity for us to entertain that. And then, obviously, the idea there is to make sure that it's not just liabilities, but in future would support assets as well.
2: So, OK, um, we've got about we've got five minutes of our formal time left. Um, I'd like to just move on to the the question of of CBDCs and monetary policy more generally. And Stephen Spreet has asked an interesting question, which is a good segue into that. He says, currently, central banks are focusing on payments with CBDCs. As we're moving to a tokenized economy, uh, do you think the government would also create the rails for safe transfer of digital assets? Or would that be up to private companies? So try and hold that that thought in your mind my my suggestion is is my thought process here is that um, we've lived since 2009 with these extraordinary monetary policies which are kind of shaded into into fiscal policy where you've got the central bank um, in effect buying up um, government bond issues Uh, CBDCs create this opportunity to go a step further uh, and introduce these programmable CBDCs that that uh, that Vadim uh, referred to, which would actually inject liquidity into those parts of the economy uh, which seem to need, uh, shall we say, some um, some helicopter dollars to, to get activity going again. And I think we, we do see the, the the central bank in China experimenting with this in uh, areas of the country which have been badly affected by by COVID nineteen. Um, now, now uh, I know that John will have some some thoughts on this, but but Vadim, perhaps you could you could you could share with us uh, because I know you've been thinking about this. Uh, how you think this model would, would work as programmable CBDC?
5: Sure, so exactly as you said, um, when we think about the last 10 plus years post the global financial crisis, one thing that has become very clear over this period is that central banks don't really have effective tools to be um, influencing economic activity directly. Uh, once the interest rate goes to uh, towards the lower bound, uh, the central bank has no choice at the moment but to operate through the banking system. That's why all of the operations that the central bank um, can put in place in order to simulate econ- economic activity necessarily have to go through the banking system. Right? The, the, the central bank simply doesn't have the tools to do anything else. That's why uh, we've got things like QE, you know, corporate QE, government bond purchases, um, LTROs, TLTROs in, um, in the European market, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and if anything, what we can tell from the last 10 plus years is that uh, these um, uh, operations create huge distortions in the economy and offer very little benefit. And it's not just my view, there's plenty of research out there uh, that, uh, that discusses this in detail. And we cannot blame central banks for employ- having employed those tools over the past decade because they simply didn't have anything else in place. But I think what we really see as a clear use case and a clear a bright prospect for for CBDC is that it really creates an additional tool um, and gives it to the central bank to be managing the economy a little bit more directly. Because if we think about what is available to the central bank right now, it's really just cash and reserves. Cash is too small and too insignificant to influence economic activity in any meaningful way. Reserves are available exclusively to the banking system. So they can manipulate reserves, but then it's really up to the banking system to decide what happens afterwards. That's why QE necessarily has to be so massive in order to at least hope for some sort of follow through effect uh, down the chain. Mm -hmm. What we have with CBDC is a radical prospect of giving the central bank, uh, not necessarily the central bank itself, but the largest sort of sovereign level institutions operating through the central banks to be accessing very specific areas of economic activity directly and not necessarily um, having to flood uh, the banking system with liquidity. So,
2: John, uh, using using monetary policy to ginger up the economy more precisely than has been achievable through QE, what do you think?
4: Well, lots of people would argue that it's none of the central bank's business to be trying to p- pick winners to decide which sectors need a bit of help here and there. I've also got uh, a couple of, um, I think, uh, Arguments I'd take with Vadim there about the operation of monetary policy. Right, well, before all the quantitative easing stuff, they had one instrument, which is bank rates in this country. And you raise or lower bank rates in order to influence economic activity. And that works basically through altering retail rates that banks set for lending. If you raise bank rates, it makes banks raise their lending rates and it it's, uh, cools, the, cools the economy off. Well, I mean, last 10 years, fine. Um, We've had lots of quantitative easing, but can't we just put the whole argument into the present circumstances where central banks in Europe, America, here, are all thinking now, or at least starting, to remove quantitative easing or reverse it, quantitative tightening. So there'd be no place for trying to uh, have the central bank buying up more assets and flooding more cash. I mean, every bit of cash that the central bank puts somewhere has to have a corresponding asset on its balance sheet. There's no place in the moment for the central bank's balance sheet to get any bigger. They'd love the central banks to get smaller. The Fed's always going on about that, trying to reduce the size of its balance sheet. Moreover, I don't see how CBDC, uh, would make would help this in any way. If if the Treasury, Bank of England, the authorities call them, want to uh, shower money on any particular sector of the economy, they can do that. I'm an old person. They give me 200 quid every year to pay for my TV license. You know, it's easy. You just give it a tax rebate or send me a check or put it in my bank account. And moreover, if it's going to work at all, you'd have to have significant numbers of people with actual accounts, CBDC accounts. before you could do that. It's no good having a few people with um, central bank accounts and oh, you can put give and cash to them, but not to the other people. You still have to work through the existing system. Sorry, I'm full of complaints about your suggestions here. I don't know if anybody want to come back on any of that.
5: Yeah, I actually agree most of the things that you said. Um, I agree with most of the things that you said. I absolutely agree that it's not the central bank's job to be picking winners and losers. But i think that it is the central bank's job to be providing a platform on which other institutions can be engaging in supporting economic activity in certain areas of of our life uh, in the priority sectors for the economy and we can discuss what those could be now um as, as you probably remember and i'm glad that you brought that up what i what, what i was talking about is the environment where the interest rate does come down to the low bound that's exactly where we start having a problem of the central bank not having the sufficient tools for yep. to economic activity. And yes, in our environments, that has been only in the past decades, but we can think of other economies such as Japan, for example, where that has been the case for almost 30 years or over 30 years actually. Um, and um, in, uh, in, in this respect, the, uh, we have to remember that right now all, or at least most major uh, developed market central banks are raising interest rates into a weakening economy, not into a strengthening economy. And it remains to be seen whether we hear a year from now, still talking about how we should uh, manage economic activity in the context of shrinking central bank balance sheets, as opposed to expanding central bank balance sheet. I certainly would hope to be wrong on that, but I think it's a little bit too early to tell that for the next X number of years, we'll be living in the, Uh, in the situation of shrinking central bank balance sheets. Now, here, we also have to be very careful and remember that the reason why central bank's balance sheets have ballooned so much is that um, they were forced to be buying government and corporate um, assets directly from the banking system. That really goes back to that point that I made earlier, which is that right now the central bank essentially is a hostage to the commercial banking system in terms of its ability to deliver any sort of economic stimulus to the economy that's please. why sorry go ahead you had
4: a you, oh, you... complaint there please quantitative easing was principally buying from the non-bank private sector most of the qe assets were acquired from for instance uh, pension funds insurance houses
5: Sorry, uh, excuse me for that. Yes, through through the financial system. Let me let me just call it the financial system, not necessarily the banking system. That's a, that's a technical point, but but I agree with you. The point is that in order to produce a very small amount of impact on real economic activity, the central bank in this model has to create a massive distortion in terms of um, financial asset purchases that yeah. on its balance sheet. Uh, what we potentially have in the future environment where we have CBDC, with uh, high-level institutions, not just the central bank, but high-level institutions working together with the central bank, is a direct um, effect on the economy, which does not involve all of the distortions that, are, uh, that have been in place over the past decade plus, and are producing such, I would say, dangerous conditions for quantitative tightening and interest rate, rate rises right now, when, at least in this country, for sure, economic conditions certainly don't suggest that it's the right thing to do to be raising interest rate. I'm not here to question what Bank of England is doing, but there's plenty of people out there to do that.
2: Just to be, to be clear, Vadim, CBDC makes this possible because it, you can see that transaction volumes are lower in Stoke-on-Trent than they are in central London.
5: Uh, no, not necessarily. I mean, that's a part of it, but CBDC certain certain um, certain architectures of CBDC, certainly the one that we're advocating for, makes it possible because they enable the central bank and other government level institutions that are working in concert with the central bank to be issuing um, uh, to be issuing credit and for the central bank to be monetizing credit for very specific areas or types of economic activity and they enable this institution to be monitoring the performance of that issuance many steps down the road as the created money is circulating throughout the economy. So the two get benefits here is the ability to monitor and the ability to influence the economic okay. So you can, you can measure the return on the investment as it were? Absolutely, as opposed to now where you literally have no clue.
2: Okay. Uh, um, Ric- Ricardo, um, you talk to central banks all the time. Is this Sort of unusual use of of a CBDC to transform monetary policy into a more precise means of um, managing a you know overall economic conditions. Is it, is it being actively discussed at the central banks you talk to? Most of the debate around monetary policy and
0: and DLT is uh, subsuming, if you like, or codifying, you know, monetary policy into the technology, so making it. Making some of it firmware, so to speak, you know, smart contracts that can that can uh, better uh, enable monetary policy to be enacted. Um, so, so things like um, you know, money, money in supply, the 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 amount that can be held, the level of transactions, um, and of course, then there's all these questions around privacy and security and so on and so forth. But most of the debate today that I'm certainly involved in is around that area versus you know how can you know, um, how can the central banks better manage interest rates and stimulus? But interest rates, of course, is a big discussion as well. I think right at the beginning was it John suggesting that you know interest rates, if there's no real use, uh, if there's no real kind of reward for use of the money, then why would it be used? So those are more the debates that I'm that I'm involved in uh, Dom than, than, than the other.
2: Right, we've run seven minutes over, but and uh, uh, so we must stop in a minute. But before we do, I think it'd be good to get one last thought from from each of you. And um, I'm be free to share with me any thought you like. But the one that I'm interested in your opinion on is whether uh, to go back to where we began. Has momentum drifted out of this? I think we're saying it hasn't. It's just reached a more serious stage. But is there a risk if we don't get a CBDC in a major financial centre like New York or like London? that they start to decay as a a financial
4: centre. What do you think, John? Do you think that's a risk? Absolutely not. I don't think it's got anything to do with this at all. London's a financial centre. For all the reasons we all know, it's because uh, it works well for everybody else and it's developed the network externalities, if I can use an economics term, so that everybody likes doing business here. We're wired up very well all around the world. So my point. Thank you no risk. What do you think, Jake?
1: Yeah, I'm fully in agreement. I think that, you know, the, the overarching uh, thought coming out of this group, you know, as you said, is that while the tangible output, both in the retail and wholesale space may, you know, it be going a little bit slower than we might have expected it to do 18 or 24 months ago, uh, not at all worried about you know, G7 economies, major market economies being left behind because there are so many things as evidenced by people, you know, uh, what people have said on this call that, you know, what we might call either CBDC adjacent or, you know, kind of just CBDC uh, projects that are taking a slightly different turn than we might have thought some time ago. So progress is still being made significantly, both in CBDC space and, you know, in public private collaboration. And uh, I think we'll begin to see the fruits of that borne out more over the next uh, 12 months, certainly.
2: So Gilbert, if we get a we get a world in which China has a CBDC but uh, the United States or United Kingdom or indeed the European Union doesn't, is that a worrying world?
3: Um, I, I mean, I, th- I think financial centres um, are evolving uh, because money is evolving because we're a very digital and hyper connected society today. Um, as CBDCs are released, they'll just be embraced and integrated into the system as, as a means of payment. But I think what we will see is, um, I mean very rightly put, John, uh, people like trading with financial centers because it's convenient and it's easy. So there is uh, an almost a, a race to, to be the CBDC center. Uh, I know the UK staked its position on this at the Treasury a few weeks ago. Um, there, there will be a ge- geopolitical play on what type of money we use for forms of payment on, on large transactions or you know, between nations. Um, but I think it's just an evolution of the existing system. It, it, it's not a replacement. It, it's not a, a, a kind of a, a fear of missing out. I, I think it will, it will all embrace it and integrate into it.
2: Mm-hmm. Now, Vadim, there are reasons that China, Russia, and indeed Iran would like to issue a CBDC. And among them is the fact they don't have to use the uh, Western-dominated uh, payments networks like, like, like SWIFT. But what do you think? Do you, do you, what role does the CBDC play in enabling New York and London to retain them? Their their preeminence against threats of that type, geopolitical threats, if you like.
5: Well, I would I would echo the other speakers um, in supporting the idea that having or not having a CDC is not necessarily will not necessarily be a deciding factor um, in of, of whether a place like New York or London retains its status as the world financial center, or whether the dollar retains its status as a as a world reserve currency. I think what makes a currency the reserve currency is i guess the intersection of um, a business's ability to to raise capital uh, to make money and to redeem capital all in the same currency so what we've seen with uh, countries like great britain over time or the united states is that those have been uh, countries that are both the source of capital for businesses to raise money whether it's through debt or equity their are major markets for businesses to be selling their goods and services to and therefore making earnings in that currency and their markets to be redeeming that capital back and doing something else with that capital. And I think, you know, with regulation and the legal environment, et cetera, being generally friendly, um, that has certainly favored places like the United States and the United Kingdom over the past hundred years plus. Now, whether the recent actions um, of, the, of the sort of the Western financial institutions or, or, or governments against Russia, whether that Creates a threat to that model? I don't think it does. Um, I think, uh, in the light of what has happened, that's certainly necessary. And yes, of course, places like China have been paying attention since 2014. In fact, Russia has developed its own um, payment um, system, MIR, um, since 2014 in relation to the preview of what they had after invading the Crimea based in 2014. Ironically, that probably is one of the very few things that actually ended up working <laughs> post-February uh, 23 or whenever they, um, whenever they uh, started their invasion of Ukraine. Um, yes, sir, certainly those, the, 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 uh, policing the world, if you will, through, um, through the dominance of the world's financial system is certainly not helpful, but I, I, I certainly think that in the circumstances of what happened, um, that was that was a, a proportional response and and again, as I said earlier I remain convinced that simply being a jurisdiction where many businesses you know around the world around the world feel like that is a place to raise money that for equity, to make money by selling goods and services and by hiring people and to redeem that money all in the same currency, that market, Will naturally lend itself uh, as, a, as a candidate for a global reserve currency. And I certainly have full faith in the United States and the United Kingdom to continue to be those financial centers.
2: Thank you, Vidim. A last word from you, Ricardo. You've heard your other panelists say that CBDC is not crucial to the survival and success of a financial center. Things like rule of law, private property, history, reliability, and so on count for, for just as much. Um, but clearly, Being the world's premier reserve currency does confer upon you an exorbitant privilege. um, Do you sense in the CBDC debate that, that the United States is conscious of its need to retain that status and how important a CBDC might be in retaining it, all these commodities priced in dollars and all the rest of it?
0: Yeah, I think I think it's broader than CBDCs and stablecoins. I think it's more about, and I think Gilbert alluded to it, kind of, you know, uh, the UK and France suggesting that they want to be crypto hubs, crypto asset hubs. So I think it's more about the, the 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 ongoing digitization of things, be them property or assets more generally, et cetera. So for me, I think it's less about CBDC stablecoins. It's a much broader debate around. Crypto assets, tokenization, the digitization—you know—of of, uh, of um, you know physical assets and native crypto assets. And the question is: Are we getting more digital or less digital? If we believe we're getting more digital, then you know, making strides towards that's going to be important. Um, the U.S. and I think we mentioned that there could be models where the U.S. may issue maybe an international CBDC, but not issue a domestic one, for example. So we don't know, I think the jury's out, but certainly I agree with kind of the general sentiment that you know, uh, the UK, the US uh, by not issuing a CBDC I don't think is gonna impact
2: their current status. Absolutely. Thank you, Ricardo. I think we had better stop there. The fact we've we've run over by 15 minutes and I still feel we've skated along the surface of of many of the topics we've we've discussed today, we will have to come back to this uh, very soon. But for now, I'd like to to thank our panelists, Ricardo Correa from R3, Gilbert Verdian from Quant Network, uh, Vadim Sobolewski from Futureflow, uh, Jake Hartley from Finality and John Whitaker from Lancaster University. And I'd like to thank you, the audience, for your, your questions and your comments. But for now,
5: it's goodbye from the six of us.